Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at BMO Education. BMO works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income-based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? BMO has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how BMO partners with and designs ISAs for world-class higher education institutions. And now, on to education trends. Julie Peller is the Executive Director for Higher Learning Advocates, a nonprofit advocacy organization working to shift federal policy from higher education to higher learning. She came to Higher Learning Advocates with a background working on Capitol Hill, and she is utilizing the policy-making skills she learned there to help become a voice for change for today's students. Julie is passionate about making the higher education experience one that works for each unique student who comes to school with a set of problems and needs specific to him or her. Building a higher education system that works for all students is hard, though, and takes a lot of non-linear type work. She discusses what she means by all of that in this conversation. Julie, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Happy to. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, why don't you just, I guess, give us a, a bio. Give me your name, your title, where you work, what you're, what you're doing these days. Sure. My name is Julie Peller. I'm the Executive Director of Higher Learning Advocates. We're a policy and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., that is working to improve federal policy for all of today's students. That's super interesting. But before we get into that, I want to know about a little bit more about you, your educational experiences, how uh, education played a role in your life and why you wanted to make it your life's work. Absolutely. So education was always incredibly important in my life and in my family's life. I had about the most stereotypical traditional experience one could have in that I left high school and went to a selective four-year institution and then went on to graduate school. Where that made a difference in my mind, uh, I always knew I wanted to to work for change and, and work for others who didn't have the voice and the opportunities that I knew I was blessed with and uh, given as a gift and not really something that I, I earned. Having gone to college, both college and graduate school here in Washington, D.C., I saw the power that policymaking really could have on that experience. So my blend of wanting to make sure that others had perhaps not the same path I had, but had the opportunity to choose their path the way that I was able to and the vantage point of seeing the power of policy really drove me to this point. So I know you worked a little bit in government as well. Tell me about how you got into that and what your role in government was and and what kind of influence that had on you. Sure. So I worked in both the executive and the legislative branches of government. I worked at the Department of Education doing some budget work on uh, programs that in K-12 schools. And then I, I spent almost a decade on Capitol Hill working on issues of higher education that experience, uh, particularly on Capitol Hill, is certainly what got me into the the higher education field and really saw the the importance of government playing a role in supporting the nation's uh, diverse set of institutions to be able to drive to their missions and serve all of today's students, not just those who happen upon their campuses, but those that need to work a little harder to to get there and that policy could help support institutions in doing that work. 
I'm curious about what were some of the problems that you faced when you were working on Capitol Hill? What were some of the things that you were working on in the education space that you were passionate about? Sure. So I was on Capitol Hill uh, at the time when we had the great opportunity to rewrite the Higher Education Act. And then the things that we were we were thinking a lot about then that were certainly increasing the availability of student aid to, to students. Uh, we made historic increases in the amount of funding supported to Pell Grants uh, and really expanded not only how much people were able to, to receive the maximum grant award, but by definition also expanded the universe of people who were able to get, get a Pell Grant. You know, the idea of a mm-hmm. low-income student really, we were missing kind of a bucket of students who needed maybe not the maximum amount of support, but still needed support. And we were able to sure, yeah. secure, secure uh, billions of dollars to infuse into the Pell Grant program to really shore that up and uh, catch that up. It hadn't been increased in a long time in a significant way, and we were able to do that by kind of re-looking at how the government structures its loan programs and by making sure that the government owned all the processes of the student loan programs. We were, it's not only more cost-effective and we can put those dollars to students instead of to banks, but we were also able to kind of think through the, the Department of Education's involvement in uh, the, the lending program in a, in a different way. And that's had some successes and some not great successes. Nobody loves their bank, but um, <laughs> you know, it's, a different, it's a different kind of conversation when it's a government contractor rather than, yeah. um, you know, uh, kind of the, the arrangement that, that was had before. So many people that I talk to say that one of the biggest problems with education is access, whether it's financial access or or just logistical access. How do you feel about the access to education? What can you do to make learning more accessible? Sure. So I think today and even today versus, say, 10 years ago when we were rewriting the Higher Education Act, access is no longer the same thing as finances. For a long mm-hmm. time, we thought about access. Okay, we need to get more people money to get into the door, which is absolutely necessary and critical, and we haven't completely solved that problem. Even problems that some categorize as not finance problems can be finance problems. You know, if you can't afford a car or a bus ticket to get to campus, that's a money issue as much as it is a transportation <laughs> right. issue. But that example of needing a car or a bus to get to campus brings up the second bucket of what I think of access issues. Uh, When we think of today's students and they're not always making that pathway between high school to college, they're not always Mm -hmm. 18 to 19 year olds, that they're working parents, that they're veterans, that they're returning adults who have stopped out of the system for a long time. Access can often be one of information one of navigation of the path of the system, you know, knowing who, Mm -hmm. where to apply or how to find out about financial aid or where to even start that process uh, is a real access issue as well. That is partially financial, but is also partially about information and availability and speaking to all of today's students, not just kind of relying on that, like very important 
high school to to college pathway. Right. And I think a lot of what you do and what you have done and what you're doing now as a higher learning advocate is is helping with that. So tell me a little bit about what exactly you do and, and how you're kind of helping the student of today that you just described that's not necessarily a traditional student. How do you serve them? Sure. So we, you're right. A lot of what we focus on are the needs of today's students. What we start often with is a conversation just kind of where we started today of who today's students are. Most mm-hmm. policymakers, most staff, and frankly, a lot of most people in the media have a particular pathway, have a pathway that looks much like mine. And we need to get over that hurdle of saying not all of higher education is is the pathway that you experienced and the pathway that you your friends likely experienced. And we so we do a lot of education on who today's students are, not only in their demographics, but what are their experiences? What are their pathways? Where are they falling through the cracks and where are they succeeding? To that end, we we embarked on a project in the last year called the Voices of Today's Students, in which we are collecting stories, video or text stories of those those students so that we can help to serve as a bridge and a connector in the policy conversations. Then we turn around and, and we have conversations about, you know, where those fault lines are and where federal policy can be either proactively supportive to to help move the needle or in some cases remove barriers and, and get out of the way for innovation and change that needs to happen out in the country. So tell me about some success stories. Where have you been able to succeed so far? So uh, we are about 18 months old. <laughs> so our yeah. barriers of success. Little baby. <laughs> little, exactly. I, I keep telling people we're at the toddler stage of organizations um, where we're not so brand new, but things are still pretty new for us. But I think we've made a lot of headway in changing this conversation and changing the narrative that the higher education solutions are only about increasing student aid and only about the high school to college pathway. That the the narrative needs to be broader and more flexible, especially as the lawmakers look to rewrite some of the, the major governing laws that oversee higher education. So we've had quite a bit of success in changing that narrative. Another line of our work is trying to break the bubble <laughs> that is the yeah. beltway or the, the ring around Washington, D.C., and bring some new and different voices into the space. So things like the the campaign that I just mentioned, or we have a, another another project with our higher learning advocates champions that are really grass-tops leaders that are, are doing the change, are doing mm-hmm. the hard work out in the country. And playing that connecting role to, to folks here in D.C. has been a really successful line of work that we've had to, again, help shift that narrative and, and drive those policy conversations. Policy change is not quick or linear in any shape or form, <laughs> uh, especially in today's political environment. So we'll take that change of narrative as a success for 18 months in. You talk about the people doing the hard work. What does that hard work look like? I'm so curious about like what it is that you guys are doing to to make these changes happen. And what what do the calls look like? What do the conversations sound like? So the conversations 
conversations sound like, so first, when I say people doing the hard work, you know, I really think that the, the leading institutions and uh, working <laughs> yeah. in the States, um, you know, I say, you know, the, the policy is, it's hard work, but it's, it's a different, different kind of work. But really what we're, we see from our champions and we see from the conversations that we're in is this idea that today's students need a couple of things. They need flexibility and they need higher education to fit into their lives as much as they need to fit into the system of higher education. They need clarity and translation of the language of academia into what it is that they're trying to do. You know, so if you are a first generation student and your family has not been through this process before, knowing what a birther is or knowing that you have to get your transcript from the registrar. These are all can be barriers that really have nothing to do about a student's ability to study and accomplish the schoolwork, mm-hmm. but can trip up a student's academic pathway. So I think that's, that's kind of the, the first thing that we're we're seeing and we're hearing. The second, and it's kind of related, is this idea that a student is a whole person. And many of today's students, are coming onto campuses or logging in online or however they're accessing higher education with the need for support and understanding outside of just their life as a student. And how, you know, different colleges are, are addressing this in different ways. But, you know, the idea that transportation or childcare or the ability to eat are actually part of a student experience, I think is a changing and very critical conversation where it's no longer the student steps on and their responsibility is about, can they study? Can they, you know, get a textbook? It's about the students not eating. They're probably not paying attention in class. If they're Mm -hmm. working three shifts, it's unlikely they're going to be able to finish the paper on time. And so recognizing how to have that conversation on campuses and how to have that conversation with today's students. I think it's a a changing narrative and a very critical one. It's so interesting that you bring that up because I feel like that gets lost a lot too, that a student isn't just there doing their homework and studying. They have other lives, outside lives, and especially the students that you described, a post-traditional student who's maybe a working mom or somebody who is making a career change. These are people who don't fit the traditional mold. So I think it's very cool that you're kind of opening up this conversation about like, these are actual people. <laughs> They're people first and students second. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it is it's so necessary to, to think about it from that lens and think about that as much as I think I don't want to imply that higher education has not cared about that in the past. I think, you know, we right. certainly, certainly have. But integrating that into the model and thinking about that as Things that are stopping students from getting to the finish line and getting to the degree or, or credential that they're after is a really exciting change in the conversation rather than saying, oh, well, that model just doesn't fit for that kind of student. And now it's, well, how do we make, how do we get some of those barriers to not be there so that that student can get to completion? Absolutely. I want to ask you, you talk about the new voices program that you set up. Who are some of the people who you work with, who you call new voices? What do they add to the debate? What are they saying? 
Sure. So our our new voices are um, we lift up voices in, in a couple of number of ways, but in particular, our higher learning advocates champions are a cohort of leaders in states and communities and institutions who are kind of thinking about these inflection points and doing the the work to to make their institutions or their states better for all of today's students. And so right now we have a set of like 14 <laughs> champions. They range from uh, Dr. Sorrell, who's the president of Paul Quinn College, that is a, a true work college and, and is really serving the lowest income students. And he's doing really interesting and exciting things to expand who he can serve and expand the number of students he can serve, as well as making sure that those students get through the finish line. Another champion is Mike Krause, who is the head of higher education in the state of Tennessee. And as I'm sure uh, you've read and heard about, they are doing <laughs> a few things around free college. <laughs> um, yep. They really were the, the kind of vanguard promise program at the state level. And it just in the past couple of weeks, they're doing what I think is absolutely exciting work is they're making sure they're ex- extending and expanding that to adults, right? So their their original promise program was about that traditional high school to, to college pathway. And now they're really thinking through how can they extend and, and make sure that that promise is there for adults. And so he thinks, and, and Mike is an interesting background on himself. He's a, he's a veteran and a today's student, an adult student himself. And so he comes up this work with a very unique and very authentic passion to be able to provide and make sure that um, the students of Tennessee don't face some, some of the barriers that he's seen in the past. They're all fantastic stories. <laughs> I could go through. <laughs> but my point is, you know, so they're doing this work in the in the states, and some are working in local areas or with their employer or as an employer. And our our engagement with them and our engagement through our this project connects that those stories that work to federal policy conversations. Our theory is too often those are happening in silos, right? Where, where federal policymakers may know about what's going on in their state or their district or what they may have read in Choose Your, <laughs> Choose Your Outlet. And similarly, those doing the work in states and local areas and that institutions might know the top line of what's going on in federal policy, but there's not a, a great channel between those two. So our champions... We work with them to kind of create more of this channel between the federal policymakers who we work with day in and day out and and the work mm-hmm. that they're doing on the ground and their networks and where we see those conversations align and where we think that they can help inform one another. We, we make those connections. Ultimately, Julie, what does success look like for you and, and for your organization? What do you hope happens as you emerge from the toddler stage into, you know, the uh, the preschool stage and then the teenage stage and all the other stages. <laughs> we are absolutely working for policy change for today's students. But, you know, we I hope that we uh, see, or we, I'm in a broader we, that the country sees a set <laughs> the, of policy. The royal we. <laughs> the royal we. Uh, this is a problem of working for government for a good amount of time. You start using we in uh, in <laughs> lots of context, and it take, it's taken me forever to break. But, you know, that policy, federal policy supports a system of 
what we call higher learning, right? That supports mm-hmm. a system of higher education that is broader than what we think of as college today, you know, that includes other high quality pathways of higher education learning, and that a student is able to go through that pathway or go through that system in a way that works for them and get to their finish line. And that doesn't always look the same for every student, but my hope is that we help have policies help drive toward a place where students aren't kind of either forced into one particular pathway or face insurmountable barriers in trying to do do something outside the norm. Awesome, Julie. All right. We always end our interviews with a lightning round, some quick rapid fire questions. Are you ready for it? Sure. All right. First up, what books have you been reading lately or what's one book that you've read in the last year that you really enjoyed? I am a mother of two small children. So my, my books aren't, um, I don't get to read as much as I used to, but my uh, seven-year-old and I are kind of going through some childhood favorites together, which is a, a fun experience. So we're currently reading James and the Giant Peach. Oh, that's awesome. That's a classic. Exactly. Um, <laughs> what about podcasts? Are you a podcast listener? I am. I am. I listen to a number of the NPR podcasts. So mm-hmm. This American Life, Code Switch, How I Built This are all ones I find very interesting. Awesome. And what about music? What's your go-to artist or go-to playlist? What are you, what are you jamming on? Hmm, I am a fan of, I like to work and listen to Tracy Chapman. Um, oh, but I will, solid. Yeah. <laughs> but um, my favorite album of all time and my go-to jam is Paul Simon's Graceland. Another classic. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what is your go-to snack or guilty pleasure? Mm, uh, Anything with sea salt and caramel. Okay, all right. A little salty, a little sweet. Perfect. Exactly. And what about favorite activity outside of work? I'm going to cheat and say two. As I mentioned, I've got (laughs) two two small boys, so Mm -hmm. spending time with them. um, You know, we like to do a lot of hiking and walking in the, the parks around our area. When I'm not with them, I'm cooking and baking. You're in the D.C. area, right? We are. So what's your favorite thing in the D.C. area? Mm, oh, that is tough. My favorite thing in the D.C. area. It's just too many to choose. Uh, depending <laughs> on what, you know, I like I mentioned, I really like the, the parks in mm-hmm. this area. It's not something people often think about with DC, but there's you know Rock Creek Park in the city itself. And then out in the, the suburbs, there's a lot of great walking trails and interesting, pretty quiet spots in a crowded urban area. Awesome. Okay. Holidays are coming up. What is your favorite holiday and favorite holiday activity? So my favorite holiday is probably Thanksgiving. And, you know, I... Like I said, I'd like to spend time in my kitchen. Uh, and so the production of it and spending time, you know, cooking and baking for that whole day is a lot of work, but a really fun, fun way to spend the day. What inspires you? What inspires me is those actually, like I said, doing the work, you know, our champions and others who are every day working to, to make 
the difference for today's students is really what makes me want to come come into work in the morning. Awesome. And last question, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received or a piece of advice you would want to leave our listeners with? The best piece of advice I've ever received is actually a management piece of advice that you know, you're interned very well, you could be working for someday. Uh, (laughs) which uh, I think I was was told to by a boss when I was that person's intern and really internalizes me that in both personal and professional settings, no matter what job title or what position you may hold, it's critical to, to always treat others with respect. Beautiful. I love it. That's it, Julie. Thank you so much again for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation and And I think what you're doing is great. And I I wish you the best of luck continuing. Thanks so much. I appreciate the conversation and have a great day. 